You're listening to Alcoholics Alive, where recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous share their experience on how they live AA as a way of life. None of our participants get paid or speak for AA. Here are your hosts, Shank and Wayne. All right, welcome to Alcoholics Live. If you ever have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can email us at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com or you can hit us up on the gram at Alcoholics Alive, TikTok, Facebook, X, Threads. Threads, yes, Threads and Tumblr. <laughs> Tumblr. And probably more, but anyway, we uh, we appreciate you listening. Shank, you know one of the things that really just aggravates me that I hear a lot? What's that? I don't know how we would add this to meeting shrapnel. Maybe we covered it. It's that term, in the rooms. Yeah. Hmm. I know y'all say it. But you say it. it. No, I don't. Don't be putting it on everyone it's else. One, it's one of the worst statements. I heard when Jay I Wayne came, share not too long ago. He said, "In the rooms." When I, when come, I came in, when I rooms. came to the rooms, you know, AA is not a room. What? AA is not a room. It's not. Who told you Alcoholics that? Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life, and it's also a book. I think we need to remind people of that. And there's a lot of groups that don't meet in rooms. Well, there so, are a lot of groups that are I, not groups. They're just I, a meeting. Just a meeting. I know it's a traditional term in AA and it's what it's a colloquialism. Is that a word? <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. So I know that it's a, it's a popular term, but it's really not. It's a misnomer. We got our guest today. We're we're uh, we're excited to hear from her. She comes all the way from Clayton, North Carolina. So, Punky, how are you? I'm well. How are y'all? Doing good. We are doing good. Doing good. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I my sobriety date is April first, two thousand and fourteen. Um, when I came in the rooms. No, I'm just playing. Um, That's perfect. I love it. Yes. I, I, yes. Um, what happened no, when you came into the rooms? <laughs> well, I came into the rooms in 2011 and then um, made the decision to drink again um, and do a whole lot of other foolishness. Um, and so any time that I've come into the rooms has been way of the North Carolina Department of Corrections. Nice. Because I am the <laughs> kind of alcoholic that has to physically be removed from the drink um, for for what it appears to be nine months, because that was both prison stints. Um, <laughs> but before I was incarcerated, um, I was just broken. Um, I was drinking 24-7 with the, with the help of some uppers. Um, drinking aristocrat whiskey. I didn't even know they made that, but it was bottom shelf. I was digging uh, change out of people's car consoles and, and couch cushions. And um, 
just really spinning my wheels. Um, I'm just, I'm just the, the kind of drunk that blows everything, destroys everything in, in my way. Um, I've started drinking at a young age. I used it as a solution for everything. I used it as a coping skill. And, um, like I said, I, I don't stop until I'm physically removed from the drink. So, um, I had to do some prison time and, and, and lucky for me, the AA meetings were waiting for me. So. Got sober on April Fool's. That is the day that I went to. That's the day that I was transferred from my county jail to the the prison down here in Raleigh. My last drink was January 28th of that year. Um, but I was swapping out bologna sandwiches for mental health medications <laughs> while I was <laughs> in the county. So I had to say April 1st because there ain't no telling when it was. April Fool's. All right. Well. Hold on to those bologna sandwiches from now on. Don't don't swap them out. Good gracious. <laughs> All right. We're glad you're here. Shank, what's our topic today? Our topic today, as we continue on through the promises, is the word serenity. So this is the fourth episode. This is the fourth sentence. If you want to hear comments about the first three sentences listen to the first three episodes all right today our reading is we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace so that's a pretty it's a pretty uh this makes me question everything do you comprehend the word serenity i don't know I mean, I understand what it means. That's what comprehend means. I had to look it up. Um, It means to (laughs) grasp mentally or understand. Um, Now, I do understand serenity. Um, So what does serenity mean to you? For me, it's um, peace, I guess. Um, Being powerless is something that um, I always had an issue with. But when you when you come into the rooms, we're just going to keep it going. And you're and you're introduced to 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 God as you understand him. Um, He becomes that power or 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 it becomes that power. And so the peace that comes from not having to be in control of everything. Um, because that's, that's what I do. I want to micromanage everything. I need to control what happened yesterday, what's going to happen tomorrow for my life and your life. But when I put my faith in God and I realize that I don't have the power for any of that, there is a peace that, that comes with that because it's exhausting trying to control everything. Um, I comprehend that and I have experienced that it is not like my existence yet but it is something to strive for what do you think jay wayne well i just realized it says you think i would know this by now but it says comprehend the word serenity i would have told you it says we're going to feel serenity and we're going to know peace like all the time i don't Mm. think i don't think that's what it says i know that um the idea of serenity and peace are completely opposite of how 
I felt before I got sober. I mean, I did get some peace and some serenity right when I took the first few drinks, maybe. Um, But it, it quickly vanished. And I lived in kind of a world of just chaos and kind of fear, turmoil. But I was in constant constantly just you know full of of fear and and tension i guess would be the right word for it i remember making an amends to my grandmother barely sober and scared to death to do it and i think i may have mentioned this once before but you know i told her what i'd done and made it and yeah, made the demonstration, and of course she already knew about all of it, and like I didn't think she did, and I, you know, it worked out fine, and I remember leaving there just, I, I felt good. I actually like, you know, I mean, I guess that would be defined as serenity and peace. I'd finally done something that was halfway decent and good, and a situation that I knew was going to and not end up well, ended up way better than I, you know, could have planned. And I guess when I left there, I knew serenity or let me back up. I comprehended it. It didn't stay with me, but I, I comprehended it at that particular moment. Well, I think you bring up a good point. Kind of what I was thinking is even if, I did not. Let's say prior to this episode of this podcast, if I had never, which I don't know that I had, looked up the definition of serenity or peace. What I did know is that I felt different. I did not feel the same um, as I did before starting this process, making amends, being close to halfway through or not just making a beginning. I knew that something in me had changed. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, when I look up the the definition of serenity, it's the quality or the state of being serene. Great. Serene is marked by or suggestive of utter calm and unruffled repose. Fancy, <laughs> unruffled. Okay. So a synonym of that would be tranquil. And so if I just keep going, going, I will find something that I do understand. I can understand tranquil, calm, peaceful, quiet, restful, still. I can understand those things. Now, did I necessarily know um, that that's what serenity meant? I don't Maybe. I do now. Yeah. A, a synonym that I got for it was untroubled. Mm-hmm. And I can I can say that that was what I experienced after um, amends, specifically in my case, financial amends. Um, you don't really realize or I didn't really realize like the weight on my soul that just knowing that I owed money or knowing that, you know, someone out there was expecting something from me, some sort of payment um, that stresses me out. So, um, yeah, was untroubled after the fact. Um, no one likes to talk about money. Yeah. <laughs> Funky. Whoa, you're getting real deep. Those uh, restitutions. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that means. 
Actually, one of my most powerful amends was a financial amend that the person didn't ask for. Um, I was about four years in sobriety and um, was a, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous from when I had come in the rooms before. Um, and he had uh, bought me a big book, bought me a Bible. Um, he was just a good member of our home group. And I was in a halfway house and he made sure I got to go to conventions and stuff like that. And um, it just was really resting on my soul and an amount came to me and I, and I saved that money up and I sent it to him and um, he didn't respond right away. I think he was baffled that I had taken it upon myself to do that, but just putting that stamp on and sending it out, like just a weight was lifted off of me. I like the word on, I like the word unruffled. (laughs) Yep. Well, another, which I'm not just, I don't know. Feel free to email and correct me. Quietude. That's not a real word. It's in the dictionary buggy. Okay. Like (laughs) quietude. That's kind of like colloquialism. Uh, Okay. Oh, I've been known to make some words up on this podcast. I did not make that one up. You did not make that up, huh? Huh? Um, That's a serene smile, isn't it? Quietude. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So my next question for you all is, does that mean that we should feel serenity and peace like after each amends or after each amend is made? Well, I think it depends on, you know, I don't know. I had an amends where what they asked me to do was stay away from them. Um, And because that wasn't what I wanted, I was not untroubled after that. (laughs) Um, So I guess it just depends on, on what's actually happening. Um, The situation, the person, what it is they ask of you. Yeah, I know that I certainly haven't felt serenity and peace after every amends. I mean, there were, I mean, all of them I was glad it was over with, but um, I made an amends to my ex-in-laws. And, I mean, it was, it was painful. Getting there and having the conversations, and I won't go into the details on it, but it it was, I mean, I had done some horrific things. And when, I mean, they were just like, dude, thanks for coming by, but uh, <laughs> just, you know, you know, just, I won't tell you what they said, but it was just like, okay, we'll see you later. Uh-huh. And, man, I felt grimy when I left there. I mean, I was, you know, glad it was over with, but it was like, it, you know, you, that's one of those things where you, you, you know, years ago, I wish I'd probably had done something different. So I wouldn't have had to done that. So I didn't feel peaceful and serene after that. I made an amends to a guy one time and he claims I didn't do what I said I did. I, st- <laughs> I stole the, I, I swear I thought I had stole some money and a necklace from him and I, I met with him and told him what I'd done and told him I was ready to pay him back. And he swears that what I told him never happened to him. 
<laughs> and so I don't know if, what happened, but I was, I left there glad I didn't have to pay that money back. <laughs> so it's peaceful and serene and a little richer. Mm-hmm. So you never so know how these things are going to go. We will know peace. We will know freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotions. We will know harmony and personal relationships, relations. Well, I think the, the use of the word know is very smart because it's, we will know what these things are, but we're, we're humans. We're imperfect. We're fallible. And, you know, it doesn't say we will always be this, you know, we will always feel this, but we will know it. We will understand it. And it, you know, it can provide us hope when we're having bad days um, and, and give us something to, to strive for or look forward to. Mm-hmm. I love that freedom from oppressive thoughts or emotions. I'm still waiting on that. <laughs> well, it, it, it comes, it comes and goes punky. That sometimes I, quickly, sometimes slowly. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. I, th- I think you, you bring up a good point though. Sometimes when you hear these terms and the promises, the ninth step promises, or you're at a meeting and you hear somebody share it does kind of imply that it's like a permanent state that we're always going to be peaceful and we're always going to be serene. I don't think that's what people mean to say, but that's kind of how it comes across sometimes. And I think it is important to point out that, you know, life visits and the idea that you're always going to be peaceful and serene and no peace is probably not realistic, Shank. Well, cause then what's the point of, of, taking action to achieve conscious contact. If it's something that we will just get because we complete this step, then, then there's no point for, of the 11th step. There's no point of the 12th step, um, you know, conscious contact with God, intuitive thought and action, helping other alcoholics. Those are all things that help us maintain that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope that today I can continue to comprehend the word serenity and no peace. Do you know peace, Shank? Just for today. Just for today. Every day will, is a day. I will say it's interesting that you bring up kind of the financial amends because I'm the person that always brings up financial, bring that it brings up money because I owed a lot of money to the state of North Carolina, to some people I committed crimes against, to an insurance company. I mean, some of this stuff, you know, there's one that like I'm still working on. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I would be willing to bet. Well, I know for sure that there's at least one person out there who recently now owes me money. And I really have not. I would I feel like I'm calm and unruffled about it, honestly, in the moment. Maybe I was like, wow, that sucks. But um, I'm I'm free from these oppressive thoughts or emotions about this person or about the situation. And it's just like, well, all right, I'm going to keep it moving, Um, which I didn't put any of that together until just now. So anyway. Yeah. I think you do get to a point or I've gotten to a point where regardless of what's going on around me, there's, even if I get distraught or anxious or aggravated, there's still something deep down inside that I know 
know that everything's going to be okay. That if I just, you know, try to do the right thing. Um, Shank, let's move on to the, the battle of the books. Battle of the books. All right, buckle up. All right, Punky, get ready. I'm locked and loaded, cuz. We are on Battle of the Books, step four, round four. <laughs> to this point, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous has won three episodes here, okay? so Undefeated. So far, undefeated. This is our segment of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous versus the 12 by 12. Um... Here is our reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 70. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. Okay. All right. Here's the 12 by 12, page 42 to 43. Step four is our vigorous and painstaking effort to discover what these liabilities in each of us have been and are. We want to find exactly how, when, and where our natural desires have warped us. We wish to look squarely at the unhappiness this has caused others and ourselves. By discovering what our emotional deformities are, we can move toward their correction. Without a willing and persistent effort to do this, there can be little sobriety or contentment for us. Without a searching and fearless moral inventory, most of us have found that the faith with which really works in daily living is still out of reach. (laughs) Some of those 12 by 12 readings... Mm. That might give the big book a run for its money today. No, absolutely Punky. not. <laughs> Play Punky, it on what do you us. think? Well, I think that those two paragraphs are counterintuitive. Um, so they're telling you to do two separate things, in my opinion. Um, let's just start with the 12 by 12. It talks about um, discovering emotional deformities and moving towards their corrections. It says without willing and persistent effort to do this, there can be little sobriety. So in my experience, what I focus on is what manifests in my life. So if I spend my days searching for my emotional deformities, that's where they're going to be. Um, what the, the big book tells me is to, to do my four step, but then focus on learning tolerance, patience, and goodwill towards men. And if I do what the big book says in, in this particular paragraph, then that's what will manifest in my life. I'm a firm believer that what I put my mind on is what I bring to fruition. So if I'm focusing on emotional deformities, then I'm going to be a big jerk all the time. But if I'm focusing on love and tolerance and patience, then I'm going to be, you know, a better version of myself. So we can tell you love that 12 by 12. The, um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Shank, what do you think? Well, 
I just don't understand a lot of what the 12 by 12 is trying to get at here. And maybe it's because I just have more experience with the big book. My first several years, you know, I don't believe that I read the 12 and 12 at all. Um, My sponsor likes the 12 and 12. Um, Not all of it, but a lot of stuff in it. And a lot of times I'm just like, I have no idea what you just said to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I don't feel that it is necessary for my sobriety um, to have like an in-depth analysis of every single emotion deformity and you know for me that is just really not helpful i've been able to you know over the past several years mend relationships through working the steps that doesn't mean that they're perfect but i can tell you that every time i have an experience let's say with a family member that has been a really challenging relationship i can assure you that I'm not thinking, I'm not looking squarely at the unhappiness that I've caused that person or myself. Right. I don't show up with that attitude. And I know this is speaking of the fourth step, but even when I was in the fourth step for the first time, I wasn't showing up in that way. It just, it it wasn't helpful. So, you know, for me, I understand, I understand like, comprehending the futility and fatality of my resentments the pointlessness of it the fatality of it like i cannot continue this behavior i can how can i be tolerant patient have a good will towards people even my enemies i had a lot of enemies when i got here <laughs> you know like there are people who today would probably say yeah, she's my enemy. And I wouldn't even consider those people an enemy of mine at all. You know, which I know means that something within me has changed. Uh, I'm not perfect. So anyone from my home group listening to this, I'm not claiming to be perfect. But, um, you know, I just don't need this in-depth analysis of my moral inventory. And of course, I have to be willing and persistent to continue on. Like that's to my understanding, what I'm supposed to be doing in AA anyway. Um, I definitely don't need to be looking at the unhappiness that I've caused myself. Right. That just seems counterintuitive to me of everything that I've learned to do and not do in AA. I need to quit looking at my own unhappiness, truly. <laughs> like, well, that's yeah. self-pity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and, and self-pity removes uh, the ability to be grateful. For me, anyway. So, I think that the 12 and 12 often overcomplicates things. Um, and I do that enough on my own. I will say the big book telling me to look on people as sick people is not necessarily that helpful for me personally either. But I do understand what it is saying. I, I, I can be very passive aggressive, like, bless your heart. Oh, you're sick. I try to chemo patient that like that's what I tell people I work with you know if someone experiencing chemo throws up on you are you gonna be pissed off at them it's probably uncomfortable right it's probably gross but that's what I try to do the most extreme thing but I don't even do the bless your heart I'm just like you're sick (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, they're both they're both like summaries or 
checklist for the fourth step. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the one out of the 12 by 12, I don't, I mean, emotions are emotions, feelings are feelings. What's an emotional deformity? I mean, it just, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. If anybody knows what emotional deformity is, please tell me. Emails. Um, your natural desires have worked us. Come on. What? It's just, this is, I mean, this is just more of where Bill complicates it. He's making stuff up and it, it's really where you start seeing that like behave, behavioral modification and mental health spin on the steps. And he's trying to do something with particularly the first seven steps that they were never really intended to, to do. And he even starts now talking about how our alcoholism is caused by our inability to form relationships with people. Well, that's a total contradiction of the big book and the doctor's opinion. If you believe that, then just get some good relationships with people and you'll be able to drink successfully. So anyway, the, the 12 by 12 reading is weird. The big book reading, I'm being kind. The big book reading is, I mean, it tells us exactly what we've done, where we should be. And then it tells us that we got to go straighten out the past if we can't. It's pretty instructional. So, Punky, are you going to uh, go with the 12 by 12 or? No, sir. Or the big book? No, sir. Um, I'm I'm a big book gal. So, I say this battle belongs to the, to the big blue. Shank? Oh, I think the big book. I'm going with the big book on this one. How about you? It's a tough call for me. Um, it doesn't really matter because we already have you two to one. So that's right. Two yeah, to three. Emotional two. Emotional deformities aside, my, my emotional <laughs> deformities won't let me make the right choice. Mm-hmm. I'm going big book. Mm-hmm. Love it. All right. So we have step four, round four. The winner is the big book. And if you relate to the 12 by 12 and you can stay sober, then please go ahead. Yep. yep. Not a problem with it. Punky. Not for me. Yeah. No, Punky, we appreciate you coming on. Appreciate y'all having and, me. And sharing your, your experience with us. Now, I don't know that you know this or not, but we've got a special treat for our guest at the end of this. That's going to be a talk that you recently gave. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Yeah, so um, continue to listen to hear the rest of Punky's story. My sobriety, a.k.a. Punky. My sobriety date is April 1st, 2014. Um, I am a member of the Cleveland 12-step group. You guys stole Aaron from us, but um, we meet on Wednesdays at at 7, 7 p.m. We got some... Some showing back there. My people came out with me. That's right. And uh, I'm honored to be here. We had a really, really fun time eating and fellowshipping with you guys beforehand. Um, I work with with women, and and I stay current with a sponsor and a home group. 
Um, and I've been asked to tell you what it was like, what happened, and, and what it's like now. So, um, I don't ever remember my life being manageable, ever. I think I was unmanageable in the womb. Um, when I came out, uh, my mom used to say that I was a nervous kid. And um, I know that I was in everybody's business pretty early on. It used to get me into trouble. Um, I knew what was best for everybody. Um, I would lie through my teeth for no reason. I would lie to make you feel bad for me. I would lie to make myself seem cooler than what I was. I don't remember there was ever a time where I lied and was like, oh, that's not the right thing to do. It was just natural. I was a liar. Um, I was sneaky. Um, I don't remember my first um, drink. I know Tony's got a good first drink story about the Paps Blue Ribbon filling his belly up. Um, I don't. I don't have that. Um, we. I come from a, a really small part in, of the state, out in the mountains, and everybody drank. Um, I remember being three or four years old, running around in, in my underoos, eating Slim Jims and stealing uh, beer out of my papa's recliner. And I'd take a big swig and I'd go, ah, and everybody would laugh and I'd run around with my Slim Jim. Um, and I mean, that's just, I still love Slim Jims. Uh, mechanically separated chicken, pork, and beef. Um, but that's just, it was just, it was just normal. There, there wasn't like this moment where I discovered booze and, and what, it's just what I did, it's what everybody did, and, and I didn't ever think that there was a problem with it. I started sneaking alcohol from the adults in my life. Um, the, those one-shot those one sips weren't enough, so I'd wait so people weren't looking, and I'd crack me a beer open and shotgun it just as quick as I could and get rid of the evidence. That was before 10. Um, I'm not real good with dates. I couldn't tell you why all the drinking I was doing, but um, I just know that it was very prevalent. It was something that I always did, always wanted to do. Um, my my mama was a was a single mama, and she had her hands full with me. She had her hands full with all three of us, but I really was not um, a good daughter. I, like I said, I wanted to do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it, and to hear her tell it straight out of the womb. So we butted heads a lot. I think my drinking really took off when um, I left home. Um, around 15, we got into a fight, and I was like, I don't need this crap, you know, and just went off into the, the wilderness by myself, nowhere to go, no plan, nothing. But I went, you know, because I'd rather... I'd rather live under a bridge, that's a dramatic way of thinking, but I'd rather do that than tell my mom I was sorry or try to try to be a, a better daughter to her. Um, I was always mad at every person, whether y'all did something to me or not. Um, I could look on your face like you're thinking bad stuff about me right now. I can see it. <laughs> and yeah. Maybe you're not. I have got, I've gotten a... <laughs> I've gotten a little bit better as time goes on. That might be my bad, but that's just a, that's just the way I was. Um, I didn't make friends. I'm sorry. You okay? 
I ain't never seen her before in my life. I'm sorry. Um, I didn't make friends because I knew that y'all already had a vendetta. Um, all the worst things that I thought about myself, I put in what I was reading in your mind. Um, so I, you know, I made friends when it suited me. Um, if you if you had something I needed, if you had alcohol, um, if your parents didn't care for a runaway teen hanging out on your couch, you were my best best friend forever and ever and ever. But if things started to not go my way, if I decided that I was in love with your boyfriend or something like that, I would find reasons to end those relationships that had nothing to do with me because that's that's what I am. Um, without this program. I am someone that cannot take responsibility for my actions. I am someone that blames everything. When I run out of things to blame, I blame God. And we'll get to that. He's wronged me a lot. <laughs> but um, my drinking, like I said, I don't remember a time that there was ever any manageability. I don't have this this period of like moonlight drinking where everything was fun and parties. The only time I've ever drank successfully was with the help of methamphetamines. Um, and then I could drink without throwing up or, you know, crying or trying to fight somebody. I just don't have those, have those moments. It was almost as soon as I was able to drink without having to sneak. Like once I got out on my own and was going to keg parties in the middle of the woods and all of this stuff. It was just blackout, nasty, throw up, fight, just gross drinking. And, and that's, that's who I am when I drink. Um, I got involved with, you know, one fella after the other. And um, you might know how that goes. You might not, but that's what I would do. Um, I got pregnant several times, um, and there was nothing... I've gotten trouble. I've been arrested. There's a file like this. Well, the last time I was arrested in my hometown, over nine years ago, the guy that was signing me in, he was like, you know, we had to get you a whole nother folder. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, what do you mean? He was like, we couldn't fit no more paper in this one. And, but, the, but nothing could, um, nothing swayed me for a while. I thought I was in the Hillbilly Mafia. It might have... We weren't named that, but we carried on in, in, a, in a Mafia manner. Um, we, um, we did, you know, we did some threatening. We did an exchange of goods and services. Like, and I thought that I was tough. I used to run around in Carhartts with chainsaws and steel-toed boots, and I thought I was a badass, and I loved it. The first time I went to jail, I was sad for about 30 minutes, but then I was like, you know what? I'm bad to the bone. <laughs> and, uh, and, then it, it, and then I just got used to it. Um, when I started mixing some other stuff, it became a vacation. I'd sleep for like three weeks until folks could, could work up bond money. Um, I share all that to say, like, jails frothy emotional appeals from my mother or my friends, um, treatment centers, life that I had created and carried in my womb. There was absolutely nothing that stopped me from drinking. And, t and it got to the point where I wouldn't want to. 
I wouldn't want to. I would, I would tell myself that I wasn't going to do it, and then I would just go through the steps and do it, and then I would hate myself. Like, I would get mad. I would cry. There were times I, like, hit myself in the head because I'd just done a shot of something, like, you know. And it was just a really, really, really dark time. And then I come up on some trouble again. I had this same court-appointed attorney that I'd had since I was uh, 17. And he was like, listen, gal, we know you're not a bad gal, but we can't do this no more. And they shipped me off to prison. Um, my badassery diminished the further I got away from the mountains. Like, I started to realize that, like, I was a very small, small fish in a very large pond. Um, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time in, in prison. It was 2011. Um, I had gotten, they made me take one of those assessment tests and they decided I was an alcoholic and they sent me to a treatment center. And um, I had some therapy while I was there. I got um, introduced to a really great group of women in Alcoholics Anonymous from Rocky Mount. Um, got connected, started working the steps, um, realized that I was an alcoholic, but I don't think that I did. Um, I think that while I did that process, I had a, a spiritual awakening. I had, you know, those moments, but it was still somehow someone's fault. It was still my mama's fault, my granddaddy's fault. Um, anyone that had ever hurt me was the reason that I drank, and I told myself that, and I told those people that, too. And I was so convincing that not many of them argued with me. I think that first year I went through three sponsors. Was it three? I'm not sure. But I had one, and uh, she started telling me stuff I didn't like. So I sat her down, and I was like, we're just such good friends. that." Um, and part of me believed that that was true, and it, and it was. I mean, she's still a dear, dear part of my life today. But I think if I really break it down is... Um, she was telling me stuff I didn't want to hear. Um, I had another lady. Um, she wanted to dress me up like a doll, and, and I didn't mind that, you know. And we went to all these meetings and all this stuff and shopping, and then she started to tell me stuff I didn't want to hear. And uh, I found a new sponsor. This time she lived in Virginia, and I was living in Rocky Mount, and I was right around a year sober. Um, and I did my fist set with her, but I told it to her in such a way that... Um, I had her eating out of the palm of my hand, you know. It was, it was one of those situations where, well, if I'd gone through that, I'd drink too, and that's what I needed to hear. Um, I never really could get accountable. Um, the person that I am today knows that y'all's actions are none of my business. Um, I'm not responsible for what you do, what you choose to do, what you don't do. Um, I'm only responsible for myself and how I react or respond to the world around me, but I, I missed that key point. We got another at the door. <laughs> hey, friend. Um, so I could tell you in, in times that I've told my story before, um, I talk about putting that sobriety together and um, relapsing or, or drinking or whatever, and I tell about meeting a boy. I tell about, you know, um, thinking that uh, trauma or upbringing was the reason that I drank. And what I know right now today in that moment is I made a choice. Um, I did do the steps to the best of my ability back then, and I had a spiritual awakening. And the, 
and the obsession had been removed. But I made a choice that day. I remember the conversation. I remember arguing with God, telling him that if it... That's another thing with this God stuff. Um, I got real tight with God. Um, so tight that, that I knew what he wanted for me and y'all didn't know anything at all. You had no clue. I was the chosen one. I made myself almost, um, almost Christ-like in my mind that I was some martyr destined to, to feel the pain of the world so that I could heal the world. So your counsel didn't mean anything to me, and um, I definitely didn't ask for it. Um, I know today that if I, there was probably 50 people I could have called before I walked to the store to get that drink that would have spoke directly from God and given me exactly what I needed to hear um, to not go. But I demanded like a burning bush or one of them talking donkeys from the from the big book, and um, and none of that happened, and so I drank, um, and then I, I, I burnt a lot of bridges. Burning is um, is a very polite way to put it. Like I demolitioned TNT some stuff, and and uh, ended up going back home and and sticking my hands in, in all the goodie bags for a few months until I just reached this place of incomprehensible demoralization. Um, I had become someone that I hated. For a while, though, um, just to give you an idea of that um, Christ-Messiah complex I was talking about, um, I had a bunch of money because while I was in the program, I was like working and being responsible, so I had money saved up. And I would go and I would buy these party bags and I would buy all these booze and I would like try to save their souls and tell them all about AA and all about God as we're doing shots and all of that. And they hung on my every word. They really did. And then I ran out of money and we couldn't link up after that. Like they might have found another church to go to. I don't know. But, you know, there I was with no money, no followers, no, no. This was before social media was a big thing, so they were actually there hanging out with me. And then I'm all alone, and, you know, it's everybody else's fault. You know, they, it was their fault, and it was um, God's fault for leading me down this horrible road. I don't, you know, why must I suffer continuously? And... Um, and then I got arrested. And, and you know, I mean, a lot of really horrible stuff happened, and then I got arrested. And um, I don't know what all I was on in that, in that sale. I know that I was DTing from, from booze pretty bad. I was throwing up. I was sweating. I was in the holding cell for like a week. Back where I'm from, they have like these, they call, we call them cocktails. The inmates did, and it was like um, a bunch of sedatives for when you were withdrawing real bad and and they slid it in there and I was like, I don't want any of that. Like I I was done. I didn't I didn't want to put anything else in my body and um I was not happy about that. Um I was not happy about who I'd become. Um I guess it was that moment of like really realizing that I was powerless, not just over alcohol, not just over, you know, substances, but like literally over everything i am i am powerless over everything and um i was mad about that um i did not like start praying to god and 
and asking him to help me or anything like that. I spent the next nine months um, really angry at God, doing some some self harm, um, praying. Like I don't even know if you would call it praying. Is cussing God out? I believe was probably more accurate. Um, I prayed one prayer, and it was about free will, and I asked. God, why I had free will because I didn't I didn't want free will. I didn't like what I was doing with my with my choices, and I really felt like I didn't have any other way to be. Um, I was powerless. I was a victim. I had no hope, and I just was mad that I hadn't died. and And that was my plan. I was going to get out, and I was gonna I was gonna die, you know. And um, I got out, and I went up down here to Glen Royal Road because nobody else would take me. And um, it was a homeless shelter. And um, I saw Susie. Where's Susie at? I saw Susie D my first night. I come out of the shelter and there she was. And we just kind of stopped and um, she gave me a big hug and I just started crying. And I think that that's... Um, that was a moment for me because I had replayed in my mind over and over during some of the darkest times that I had um, during that uh, relapse, like what I had left behind, what I was missing, um, the family that I had chosen, and more importantly, that had chosen me, and I missed it so bad, but then with all those thoughts came all the um, assumptions about what they would be thinking of me and what they would say if they saw me again. And to see one of those folks, like my first night there when I had, I was just looking for a way out. I'm stuck at this homeless shelter because they wouldn't release me from prison without an address. And, you know, I'm waiting for the, for the training to come through so I can hobo jump it to the next town. Like, And um, I saw her and she didn't, there was no like, oh, you right. You know how we get sometimes. It was just a big hug. And I just started crying. And um, she asked me if I was done <laughs> once and for all, good and for all. I don't remember how she put it. And I was like, yeah. And I asked her to take me through the steps. And she took me through the steps. Um, but dog, she didn't have my number. So there was no waller in, in, in self-pity. There was no blaming because um, I had always told myself if I had had more support or, or more love and nurturing, I wouldn't have turned out the way that I did. But that time in AA, that's all I had um, was love and acceptance and support. Um, and I, I, it didn't matter. I made a choice to drink. And when I make a choice to drink, all bets are off. And I become a person that I'm ashamed of. Um, so we got through the steps pretty quick, and um, I was really angry. I was really angry about, um, I think, probably still that victim mentality, just like um, the book promises the obsession was gone. Um, but sanity hadn't returned completely, probably because I didn't think that I was insane. I was still kind of wrapped up in it being other people's faults. Um, and then, you know, probably at about two years, two and a half years into um, sobriety, I like quit AA for like 18 months. And um, 
I never wanted to drink, but I did not want to live. Um, I hated myself, um, my husband. I resented our then little baby boy. I was isolated and dark. Just everything in me was dark and, and black. And um, I really had gotten to that place of like hopelessness um, without the drink because drinking is my solution um and it, it it never has been the problem i'm the problem and i was able to see that i was able to see that without the drink i'm still a miserable jerk you know that that hates everyone and everything and is ungrateful and you know arrogant and just full of fear and full of self-pity um my husband and i moved out to Clayton, we bought our home, and I found the Cleveland 12-step group. And um, they welcomed me in, and I got current with uh, my sponsor. I got current in a home group and started taking service positions. I started sponsoring women, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm not miserable. I don't want to kill myself, and, and life starts to get better. Um, more more accurately i started to realize how great my life had already gotten um i am someone that if given the opportunity i will sit around all day and think about what i don't have and that's why i'm miserable um but working with um women in the program um keeps me free of that stuff a little bit um i'm not I'm not perfect by no means. I am a progress, not perfection kind of gal. And a sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly kind of gal. But um, I know that my greatest source of growth started when I started working with the newcomer. Um, when I started getting out of what I wanted and started focusing on other people. And um, I have changed immensely in just the past um, four years. I was able to um, get my driver's license back. I was talking about this with Kim on the way over. Um, so I had like three DWIs in like less than five years. The first two were like a month within each other. Like you have to wait that month period and then you can pay to get them back. Well, I had them back for like a week and then got another DWI. And then the second one, I my license were revoked. I was driving 115 miles an hour with a bottle of wild Irish rose. I was listening to Mumford Sons, crying. Um, I was just, so there's like this stretch of highway between Rocky Mount and the Tarboro exit. And I was just making this loop, like just going um, round and round and round. And she finally pulled me over and I was like crying and blubbering. And she was like, are you all right? And I was like, no. And then um, she asked me to get out of the car. I was like, can I finish this? And she was like, no, ma'am. And I was like, okay. Because um, I really just wanted that drink. But I, I tell that to say that, like, there's no reason why I should have a driver's license. But, you know, I drove myself and my buddy Kim here tonight. Um, I have a relationship with um, one of my children. He's, um, he moved down with me when he was 15. 
and um, I've been able to reconnect and, and rebuild that relationship. He's able to see who I am now and, and not who I was, and, and that has been... Um, There aren't words to describe what that has been or what that has meant to me, and and that's a that's a product of this program. Um, my husband and I met. He was at the men's campus of that place, and we was canoodling when we weren't supposed to. But um, <laughs> you know, that's what I do. But um, we uh, we were two broken, crazy kids that probably shouldn't have gotten together, but we did, and we've somehow made it work. Um, we love each other. He's become my best friend. Um, we are fire and ice. We're two completely different people, but it works. Um, and we have um, we have a, a little girl that we welcomed into the world on 2020. We shut it all down after that. This <laughs> so Gal's been pumping out kids since she was 18. I'm going to take a break. But, you know, I share a lot. Um, I share a lot from the podium that, like, I'm a boring baseball mom. And I never really expound on that. But, like, I would watch, you know, Family Matters or Full House and, like, see all this stuff. And I've... I've you know, that's kind of what my life is. Not exactly, because I'm a little rough around the edges. But, you know, we have, I have, like, this family. And, and the the worst thing I have to worry about is, like, whether or not, you know, I forgot to pick up, this, if it's my night to bring snacks to, to baseball practice, you know. And, and that's just something that I never thought um, was possible for me. I mean, when I was a kid, like, I was a morbid little kid. I used to fantasize about... Like, my whole family getting into a car accident in the water, and I would, like, save all of them but, like, drown and die. Um, and, like, I just never really saw. I couldn't even swim at that point. Like, I can barely swim now, but, like, those were the kind of fantasies that I would have. Like, that my life was going to be short, and I was going to go out and, like, you know, slow walk away explosion or something, somebody's hero. And it's just... Bananas. If you had asked me when I was 17 what my life would be like when I was 38, I'd tell you that I was going to be dead. You know, um, whether it's because of the life I was living or if that's just what I wanted, but you know, that's not that's not my story. Um, I'm not dead. I'm very much alive, and I have a lot of wonderful things in my life. Um, I have friends. Um, I don't lie anymore. Um, that was something that was really hard. Um, I would actually like be going down the road talking to AA people and like telling this funny story, completely fabricated, and um, it might have it might have been rooted in truth. All right, but like it's one of those the fish went from here to here to here. So, but um, I would stop myself. I would be like, look, I don't. That was a lie. I don't. <laughs> oh. I don't know why I just did that, but that was a lie. And then I would either clean it up or be like, I completely made all that up. I just, I don't know. And um, that has been a huge gift for me, though, because I value honesty now. Um, and um, I don't steal anymore. 
Uh, I don't have to sneak around anymore. I don't have to be ashamed of who I am or what I've done because I'm not doing anything that I, that I should be ashamed of. Um, like I said, I'm not perfect, but I know that I work diligently to be the best version of myself that I can be. Um, sometimes I cuss people out if they're beeping the horn at me and in the Bojangles when I'm trying to pull out. Um, but, you know, I call someone right away and we walk through it and how that's not something that we're supposed to do. You know, I, I try to work the steps to the best of my ability. For a long time in my recovery, I was someone that would not do 10, 11, and 12. Um, I would bank resentments and then just do like a massive fourth. Um, I would just, until I, you know, I felt like I was going to explode or I was exploding. Um, I really try hard to do that 10, 11, and 12 now. I really try hard to watch for all of those things because, you know, like I told you guys in the beginning, I came out of the womb practically a liar, a thief, a sneak, just selfish and self-centered and full of fear. And all of that stuff still plagues me, but I have, um, I have a, a roadmap. You know, and I, and I try to catch those things. And I always feel better when I do. I always feel better when I make amends right away. I didn't at first. Like, that stuff really got under my skin, especially the way they write it in the book. It's not really like I'm sorry or, or whatever. It's, I was wrong. Like, I, I hated that for, like, a really long time. I don't know if that's in the book or not, but that's been the way that I've been taught to do amends. It's I was wrong. And that, that was really hard for me to say. Um, there are things that, that I used to think would stay with me forever that don't impact me anymore. Um, I'm able to, to walk through, through life, um, free from a lot of things that, um, that I never thought that I would be free of. Um, I'm still working on fear. Um, I'm still... That whole fear versus faith thing. I still think that I'm God sometimes. I don't mean to be, but that's what my actions show. I still think that, especially if I love you and you're like in my circle, like I think that I can tell you what to do with your life. Or, um, And it's just, it's stuff that I have to work on constantly. What I know without a shadow of a doubt is that I don't ever have to drink again. And that I have things in place. Um... For every situation that I've come across over the past nine years, it's in that book or one of you guys has the answer for me and it doesn't involve a drink, it doesn't involve an assault charge, it doesn't involve an affair or any of those things. Um, and and that's, that's a gift too, um, that I have friends, you know, that I, I don't have all these walls up where it's just, Trish is king of her castle. It may be burning, but it's hers. Like, I'm, you know, I have, I just have people in my life that I trust enough to tell me the hard truths about myself, that I trust enough to guide me when it gets overwhelming. Um, I really thought that I was alone before coming to this program, and, and I know that I'm not. Um... I don't know that I can say enough about what this program has given me. The mother that it's given my children versus the mother that I would have been 
without this program. Now, if you want to hear about a painful amends, try making one to like a five-year-old who looks at you and says, it's okay, mommy, everybody makes mistakes sometimes. And like, you're kind of proud of him, but you also want to punch him in the nose at the same time. But um, I don't. <laughs> what does Paige say? You can think about robbing the bank. It's not an issue till you get out and put the ski mask on. But you know, I just, I'm a person that I never thought was possible. I'm a, I'm a person that before I came into this room, I had no example of. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of who this program has turned me into. And I will be eternally grateful for that. So um, I guess that's all I got. Is that good? <laughs>